0: The glass broken back there. Um, If you follow the news cycle this last week, these last two weeks, there have been a lot of things going on um, in our nation and in our world. Um, And it's kind of been bubbling up inside of me that for my own conscience and and for just the record of history that I needed to get up on stage and, and, and make some unequivocal statements about what is good and what is wrong, about what is allowed and desired by God and what is not allowed and not desired by God in our world. We have apparently Nazis back marching in the streets. We have elected officials who apparently cannot unequivocally condemn Nazis. I mean, I grew up, we fought a world war, right, to get rid of them, and now... We have a hard time being strong about our opposition. We've got white supremacists back into the conversation, as if equal partners in the conversation about what society should look like. On a world scale, you've got crises that are perhaps just more than we're able to comprehend in Venezuela and in Turkey and an impossible situation in Syria. And, and this whole week, I've kind of been ruminating and was like, I am going to come down like thunder this Sunday and just lay it out all on the record. And then I had to also study the passage that I'm preaching this morning. And in the passage that we'll look at this morning, we're in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. The passage is Jesus giving us a very strong warning not to judge others. And he gives us a very strict warning about what will happen if we judge other people. And so I've had to really explore this passage, struggle with it. And what I want to do this morning is try to find the fine line that Jesus is teaching us here about how it is we're able as Christians to speak and name and identify evil in the world while also adopting the posture Jesus clearly calls us to as uh, non-judgmental people here in the world. Um, I studied church history um, in in grad school, and I think a lot of our modern-day ails in the church come from just not really understanding uh, a little bit more about the broader church history. Sometimes we think we invented this thing, and the ideas we've had in the last 200 years are the only ideas— you know, that are viable and that Christians have had. Um, But if there's one truth of, of Christianity and religion and world history, it's that the most dangerous things happen when Christians, the church, does not speak up against evil, or even worse, becomes the chaplain for a political regime or agenda that has at its aim evil, destruction, the opposite, of the flourishing of human society. So, with that, let me invite you to open up with me to Matthew chapter seven. There's a lot here to to think about and to 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 to, to dig through. And I truly do think if we have a faithful study of this passage, we'll be able to be in a place where we both benefit from the life-giving teachings of Jesus and also are able to assume a responsible role in, in society. So we're in Matthew chapter 7. Um, we're just going to look at the first five verses here. Uh, we are coming to the end of our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so in chapter 7, Jesus starts to summarize some of his points. He starts to get a little more specific with some illustrations. And we'll read together uh, Matthew 7, um Uh, verse 1 through verse 5. This is Jesus, our Lord, teaching. And he says this, Judge not that you not be judged. I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, and so it might be a little bit different uh, in your Bible if you have a different translation. Verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, what Jesus means here is not altogether clear. Um, we are aware that when Jesus taught, it was not in English. And so when we read um, in, in our English Bibles, we're reading choices people have made. They've taken words in Aramaic, and Greek, and they've decided this captures it best in English. Um, but those choices aren't infallible, right? Sometimes we can make a choice that kind of reflects maybe not the exact connotation Jesus was trying to get at. Jesus here says, don't judge people. And that kind of fits into our broader cultural um, trend of like, don't judge me, bro. Right? You don't know me. You haven't walked in my shoes. And yet, immediately we're confused because Jesus himself seems to judge people. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in just a few weeks, we'll look at Jesus and he'll say, you should judge all the people around you based on their actions, not their words. In Matthew 23, Jesus gives seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, two groups Jesus is not a fan of. And he insults them. He calls them very pointed names. And he pronounces very descriptive punishments that are coming for them. In the Old Testament, you had men of God who their job as prophets was to offer judgment. At its core, judgment is just discernment between right and wrong. That's what a judge does, right? Says, this was good, this was bad. This is acceptable, this is not acceptable. And the prophets would come to the people of God and say, look, you have all of this money, and half of you are starving, that's not okay. Or you claim to worship God, and yet you have forgotten all of his laws, and that's not okay. Okay. And we have prophets in the Old Testament speaking truth to power to the kings of Israel when they were out of line. We have prophets speaking truth to power of other countries, pagan countries, when they're out of line. And the New Testament is full of this kind of uh, strain of thought. In 1 Corinthians, we're told to focus on less the outsiders and more judging each other. Again, the term judging there, there was not inherently bad, as we commonly think of it, right? It's just that we should be able to tell one another in a trusting relationship. We should be able to discuss what's good versus what is is not good. So a lot of scholars have suggested, because of these perhaps contradictions, because of these complexities and tensions, that the word Jesus uses here might be better translated as, do not condemn others, or you yourself will be condemned. And the difference here would be a very nuanced difference. To judge would be to discern between what's right and what's wrong. To condemn would be to say, this person, they themselves are going to be judged. To condemn would be to put yourself in the place of God. To discern would be to simply do what you have been called to do by the, the scriptures. And so I don't think here when Jesus says don't judge, I don't think he by any means says don't discern between good and evil. I don't think he means don't think. Jesus again wraps up the sermon by telling us to discern between true and false prophets. We're forbidden here of damning people, not of discerning between good and evil. This is one of the reasons I don't like partisan politics. It's because it becomes less of a debate of ideas and more just ad hominem attacks on people. We assume the worst about people. If you're new to the church, I'm an equal opportunity offender. So, so there's no, no sacred political cow that I won't, won't hurt. Okay. So um, when Obama was president, I went after Obama when I thought something was wrong. But I never felt the need to try to you know, advance rumors that Obama was not born in the United States or that he was a secret Muslim trying to take down the American dream from the inside out. I never questioned his intentions. I don't know his intentions. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he wants what he thinks is best for America. You know what my problem was, though, is that he ran on a campaign of peace, which I'm all for, and then he'd drone the whole world. And I'm not scared of Obama as a pastor. He's not untouchable to me. The difference is I don't, I don't go after Obama himself. Do you see the difference there? I say Obama maybe thinks he's doing the right thing. I think, though, that droning civilians is wrong. Full stop, find another solution, Mr. President. And as we'll see, Trump is not by any means untouchable either. I don't think Jesus is saying that we can't have high standards of behaviors for ourselves or for the public, the world. He's saying that there's a temptation inherent in all of our natures to look down on each other for moral failures. And it's a temptation to play God. And the warning he gives is that the judgment will bounce back on you. That condemnation will bounce back on you. Which makes us kind of want to play lowest common denominator, right? Like if I know how tightly I judge your actions and intentions, it's going to be how tightly my actions and intentions are judged. I'm going to start lowering that bar a little bit. (laughs) Let's make it safe for both of us here. Jesus says there's this, this bounce back that's going to happen when you start to condemn other people when you have a measuring stick for them before you even try to figure out your own problems, the log in your own eye. We have to note, Jesus doesn't rule out the possibility that some people will eventually be able to help other people take specks out of their eye, be able to realize that what they're doing or advocating is wrong. What he does say, though, is that in most instances, the people who are most eager to try to identify specks of sin in other people's eyes are the people who have logs of sin in their own eyes or the people who need to probably take the longest to think before they speak and to look in the mirror and reflect before they speak we we've got to learn to distinguish between moral discernment and personal condemnation and that's a big big difference the distinction is between the ability to know what's wrong or right good or bad versus the ability to know who is right or who is bad, who is going to be condemned by God, who will not be condemned by God. And Jesus prohibits that in this passage. And the, the flip side of a life of condemnation is a life of humility, is a life of love, is a life of mercy. The disciples don't sit in condemnation over people. We act with mercy towards people, even towards our enemies, even towards people we think are doing wrong. We don't demonize them and condemn them. We can still hold fast to the truth that this is revealed in the Scriptures by God as wrong while still saying, but I love you, and you and me aren't that different if we really take time to think about it. And I've done similar things like that, and I've been forgiven. And so my dialogue towards you, my posture towards you, is going to be one of love and mercy. Too often, I think, Christians are known. Um, so the classical cultural assumption about Christians is that they're judgmental people. I don't know if you know a lot of Christians. It seems beyond. be on. It seems spot on there. Um, I think one of the big mistakes we've made is there's two types of judgments. There's a judgment of what's wrong and the judgment of what's right. And I think Christians really should try to be known for our judgments about what is good for the world and not what's bad for the world. Jesus gets at this in John chapter 13 when he says, They'll know you by your love for me and for one another and even for your enemies. He doesn't say they'll know you because of the protest signs. He doesn't say they'll know you because of your moral superiority over other people. He doesn't say they'll know you because people can't stand to be around you and you call it persecution, simply because you can't extend love and grace the same way God has extended love and grace to you. I think it would be a big win if we were known for our judgments about what was right in the world. Peace, love, forgiveness, joy, mercy. The alternative that Jesus gives here, the alternative to condemning, the way forward for Jesus is to acknowledge our sins. It's, it's to confess our sins. And in church history, There's been a very long tradition coming out of the scriptures themselves. The book of James talks about this very specifically. The Christians are called to confess their sins to God and to others. A lot of us uh, come from a tradition, including myself, that was born out of a reaction to Roman Catholicism, which classically has these times of confession to a priest. Um, and, And so we saw that and see that as maybe a little superficial or shallow and not maybe that much life-changing. And so we have made confession really something we just do to God. But throughout history and in the Scriptures, confession is something that we do to to one another. We claim and own our sins. I think Jesus is saying, it's only when you can claim and own your own sins, when you take that log out of your own eye, that you might be able to see clearly enough to help a brother or sister across from you take the speck out of their eye. You can't take the teachings of Jesus, we've mentioned this throughout the sermon series, away from Jesus himself. Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. He is the ultimate interpreter of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So when we hear things like, Blessed is the peacemaker. We know that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness tonight. Like we know that Jesus is persecuted for righteousness. Like blessed are those who turn the other cheek, who pray for their enemies. We know that this is all things true about Jesus. So Jesus embodies and lives out what he's trying to communicate to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the problems we get when we get into judgment and condemnation is we take Jesus' teachings and we separate them from Jesus himself. So Jesus here teaches us a new standard of life in the Sermon on the Mount. If you read chapters 5 and 6, or you've been with us, there are some very high standards Jesus gives us. But those standards are not given to us apart from Jesus himself, apart from Jesus' work on our behalf to forgive us, to extend mercy to us, to pour out his Holy Spirit into our lives, to allow us to continue to grow and, and, and become more faithful and more obedient. But when we start to condemn people, what we do is we take the standards that Jesus has given us, we rip them out of context, away from Jesus themselves, and now we use them as a weapon. Now there are standards, and they're what we can live by and what you're not living by. And all of a sudden we're thinking about them and communicating about them with no strong tie to the person and work of Jesus, who is the revelation of God's unending, patient, relentless pursuit of you, and the person you hate, of his love for them, of his desire for them to repent and find life. Bonhoeffer, a a scholar I respect, who incidentally happened to write um, as part of the Nazi resistance uh, church, um, says this, people might have come to think that it was Jesus' will that such divisive and condemnatory statements were to be made in disciples' daily dealings with each other. Thus, Jesus has to here make clear that such a misunderstanding seriously endangers discipleship. Disciples live completely out of their bond with Jesus Christ. Their righteousness depends only on that bond and never apart from it. Therefore, it can never become a standard which they own and use in any way they please. What makes them disciples is not the standard for their lives, but Jesus Christ, the mediator and the Son of God, embodying God's love and forgiveness for us. The appropriate stance for the acknowledgement of evil, for us to be able to judge what's right and wrong, is for us to get the log out of our own eye for us to confess our sins, for us to repent, for us to even find empathy with the people who are perhaps advancing things that we think are wrong. We quite literally can't see clearly unless we've been trained to find and root out the log in our own eye. And this requires community. I've mentioned many times it's very hard to be a Christian by yourself. If I have something in my eye, and I want to get it out, I want to see it, I want to examine it, how am I going to do that right now? My eye cannot see itself. I need Michelle to look at my eye and say, here's what I see. It's a piece of dirt, it's a piece of the broken glass, the bars broke, right there in your eye. We need We need community a loving, trusting community. You can only confess your sins in a community when you know that they're not going to shame you for them, when you know that they themselves are fully aware of how forgiven they are, when you know before you confess the sins that you are already forgiven by those people themselves the same way when we confess to God, we know we're already forgiven. That's the confidence we have to be able to do it. But we're told to take the log out of our own eye in order to even have the possibility to see clearly enough to help anybody else with specks in their own eyes. We might say it like this, evil, what's wrong in the world, is not something that's out there apart from us. St. Augustine, an early church father, took this line of thought a little farther, and, and he suggested evil itself doesn't exist. There's no place or thing or substance that God ever created called evil. Evil is what happens because of human will. We take God's good creation, and with our own free agency, we warp it into something that's called evil. Or we might say it like this. Evil is not the line between myself and my group and someone else's group. Evil is a line that runs down the middle of my body. Evil is a potential in all of our wills. And we've all chosen evil at one point or another. And judging here makes us blind, because when we judge, we're blind to our own evil. We're blind to the grace that God has given us. There's a complex kind of system of reactions I think Jesus is anticipating in this passage. I think what he's saying here, um, he's expecting it to create Disciples who are self-judgmental, who reflect on themselves and what they have done or not done, the sins they have been complicit in or not complicit in, which will lead to humility. It's hard to look down on other people when you've fully realized, yeah, I've been a part of those things just as much. Maybe, Maybe different, but the same level. And yet, the forgiveness and grace that they need is the exact same amount of forgiveness and grace that I need and that I have. And that humility, I think, Jesus expects to lead to repentance and sanctification to us saying, okay, we acknowledge the log in our eye and we want to work faithfully with the the help of the Holy Spirit to walk and grow in more faithfulness. To get rid of whatever that log is in our eye. And then that repentance and sanctification leads to the kind of humility that would allow us to treat others, other sinners, with mercy and love and grace. So we don't demonize, but we have solidarity with sinners. We have hope for them. And only after that's the case, after self-reflection, repentance, empathy, do we then even have the chance to have the clarity to discern in other people's lives what's good or wrong? So let me bring this full circle and apply it to a few situations here. You have uh, white supremacists. The answer, if you're wondering about the morality of white supremacists Supremacy as an ideology, ideal, ideal, ideology as an agenda. The answer, if you're wondering, is no. Full stop. End of commentary. There's not. There's not even a moral ground for discussion about it. Not when you understand that God has created all people and loves all people. Certainly not when you think about certain transgressions and historical sins committed towards other people. The judgment here is no. Just no. But before we can make that judgment, here's what I suggest the questions we have to ask are. Have I ever felt superior than someone else? Maybe not racially, maybe skills-wise, social-wise, economically? Have I ever felt superior towards someone else? Have I ever tried to fight or defend that superiority? Have I ever tried to defend and keep my safety and comfort over some other group of, of people? And if the answer is anything like it is for me, it's yes. I don't think I've ever really you know, had any ounce of racism in my body, Um, but I've certainly looked at other people and thought, I'm a little bit better for different reasons. But here's what that tells me. I can kind of empathize with the white supremacist. Not in the exact way that they are believing and acting, but in a similar way. And the forgiveness and grace that has changed my life to help me through the hope of the Spirit to get over the sense of superiority is the forgiveness and grace that white supremacists need in their life to be able to be transformed into healthier human beings, to be able to be transformed into people who understand and know the love of God and can live that out. Nazism Again, I can't believe that this is something we have to talk about. The answer here? No. Full stop. Again, not a discussion. But before I can say that, I have to sit down in my room and ask myself these questions. Have I ever looked down on a certain group of people? Have I ever thought the world would be better without a certain group of people? I'm an introvert, so extroverts I think are expendable. <laughs> just imagine a world full of introverts. It's it's heaven. Michelle, can I get an Amen? I just offended like eighty percent of the people here. I have. You know, I saw a statistic floating around the internet the other day. Um, And so by no means do I trust specifics that float around, or stats that float around the internet. Um, But it seems to have at least a general truth behind it, which is that a large majority of babies born in the most civilized countries in the world who are diagnosed with Down syndrome are then terminated. Um, So the figure, I've heard from respected people, that I've asked about, is 90 to 100% in Iceland. It's over 60% in the United States. And then in the four countries, three countries between there, closer to 80, 90% as well. And I hear that. And that sounds like a neo-Nazism agenda to me. Sounds like eugenics. And the answer to that is No. And to really think about how the church can say no, here's what it's going to require. It's, it's often, so I was told in Iceland, it's not the government requiring kids with Down syndrome to be, to be put away. What, what, what's happening is parents learn about it and aren't willing to give up that sacrifice. Here's how the church responds to that, I believe. It's not through demonizing those parents. It's just saying, we'll take them. We got room in our church. We know some orphanages. We've got people who individually adopt some of them. Because if we don't say that, we have no moral authority to condemn other people for doing it. I mean, if we're not willing as a church, if we're not willing to even examine the question of, should we take on what is a sacrificial lifestyle to live and raise children with problems like these? Then, then, what business do we even have doing looking at the rest of the world and, you know, raising our eyebrows at that? The issue of leaders who can't be unequivocal in discerning what's right or wrong. You know, President Trump. By no means am I a huge Trump fan. By no means, though, am I a a Trump hater. We talked about this during the election cycle, right? My ideal role of Christians in politics is not to hate Hillary and love Trump or hate Trump and love Hillary. It's to stand in the middle and point out to both of them what their flaws are. (laughs) To say, okay, you maybe have some of these issues right, but you maybe need to think about some of these issues. And you maybe are a little bit better suited over here, but think about these issues. I don't want to baptize a party. I don't want to baptize an agenda. And just as Obama was never off limits, Trump's not off limits. And Trump can't put together a complete sentence and say that Nazism and white supremacists are in the wrong. That's a problem. And I and others will stand up and have stood up. And luckily, I think we've got a lot of responsible congressmen doing so at risk of their own careers, correcting this. You know, there was a pastor recently. He's a high-profile pastor um, in Dallas. And I say pastor loosely. He was one of the first pastors, big megachurch, first pastors to... um, come out in support of Donald Trump as he was campaigning. He has the ear of the president now. And he, in a wide-ranging interview about North Korea, he mentioned that the Bible gives the president the authority to use nuclear weapons to solve problems in the world. Um, and so I was reading the article. I was like, first of all, no, it doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't give the government the authority, right, to do actions such as that. But there's not a, by any means, necessary clause. There's not a world destruction clause in there. They're still accountable. And then he said this. He said, Christians are going to quote back to me the Sermon on the Mount and other passages in the Bible that talk about searching for peace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And he said, quote, I don't want a president who embodies the Sermon on the Mount. Christians should not want a president that embodies the Sermon on the Mount. And I had two really clear issues with this. First, I want to wonder if this pastor is aware that the Lord of Lords, that the President of Presidents, who according to scriptures is ruling over all of the nations right now, who apparently his ultimate allegiance is to, He embodies the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, is he he upset about that? You don't want a president who embodies the Sermon on the Mount? I don't know how you can want to be a Christian. And then two, for somebody to not embody the Sermon on the Mount is to literally, linguistically, be anti-Christ. I'm not calling Trump the Antichrist. I don't believe, from my studies in theology, that there is going to be this one Antichrist figure that rises up and starts a world war. Um, In the scriptures, you only see the word Antichrist in plural. John says, there's Antichrist among you. And it's as simple as it sounds, right? Anyone who opposes the agenda of Jesus is opposite of Jesus. To be someone who doesn't want to live out the Sermon on the Mount is to be someone who doesn't want to be close to Jesus. And then as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, I'll wrap up this morning like this. Oftentimes it's way easier to make statements about big world events. To make statements about people bigger than you, easy targets. And the work of the Christian is always to start with our heart and our own life. So who is it in your life What's that relationship? Who's that person you have trouble with condemning them? Who is that person, your workplace, and your neighborhood, and your family that you need to self-reflect about? You need to ask yourself those hard questions. That you need to make sure that the log has been examined by every angle before you attempt to even see the speck. That's over on the opposite side. I mentioned someone said something not nice about me earlier this week. And so I probably spent the rest of the week planning their demise. (laughs) I can be that petty. And before long, what might have been one not nice comment was countered by a week of me (laughs) saying not nice things. And I would have never noticed it unless I had community around me, unless my wife was sitting next to me one day and was like, do you hear what you're saying? You have like a year-long plan to, to get this person fired and ostracized from their community. And I look at this passage and go, okay, here's the deal. Before I can even think about what this person has said or done to me, it looks like I've got a lot of work to do looks like I've got a lot of reflection and a lot of prayer and a lot of forgiveness to ask for. And I bet you, we'll find out, but I bet you, after that time, I'll see the issue differently. I'll have mercy. I'll have grace. I'll probably agree with her. Yeah, I was kind of a jerk then. But this is the hard work Jesus calls us to. To not abandon our responsibility to stand up for truth and justice, but to abandon our presumption to play God and condemn others. To pretend that the forgiveness and grace we have been given is something that they cannot be given. Something that they do not need in their lives. And so we're called to do the hard work of reflection. And then only after that hard work of reflection might we be able to stand up and speak clearly? And hopefully more clearly for what we're for than what we're against. But hopefully clear and loud that we might be the church. That we might not go down in the history books as the group of people who sat by and were quiet while things slowly tumbled forward in the direction of evil. But that we might be faithful followers of Jesus, so consumed by the life we have in Him that our only desire is to spread that life to the rest of the world, even to our enemies, especially to our enemies. And even though that might mean tough discussions about what's right and what's wrong, it means we do those discussions in solidarity, with humility, with empathy. And by God's grace, I think that's the way forward. The kingdom is a seed that's planted and over a large amount of time slowly sprouts up. And the kingdom is a kingdom that is not enforced through coercion or swords, but through patience and persuasion and conversion. And we were given patience. I've been given patience. We were allowed to convert and be persuaded. And we have to give those same benefit of the doubts to the people around us. And at the same time, we need to be clear what's right and what's wrong. Would you pray with me?